everyday theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. With me on Everyday Theology, um, a, a new friend, someone who I just blindly emailed and said, hey, this book is interesting to me. And he so congenially said, sure, I'll have a conversation with you. And now we feel like we're friends, even just in the 10 minutes before the podcast that we first discussed. But it is uh, Dr. Jason Baxter. Jason, thanks so much for doing the podcast with us. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, Jason is an associate professor of fine arts and humanities at Wyoming Catholic College, and he wrote a book, the book that I was interested in. Of course, now he's got multiple books that I'm interested in that I'm hearing about now, but uh, the one that we wanted to talk about today was his new book on an introduction to Christian mysticism. But before we get into that, Jason, would you mind letting our audience know a little bit about you, kind of where you, where you got to and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. I am a father of five. Um, I'm married to a wonderful human being. I grew up in Arkansas and um, went to a tiny school in Canada called Augustine College with 16 students. And that year at Augustine College kind of changed my life. I, I had gone there, enrolled in a pre prestigious university and deferred matriculation. Uh, and I had thought that I wanted to go into politics and business. And hmm. I went up into this little tiny college, this kind of gap year, Augustine College, and met the liberal arts for the first time. And I was absolutely in love with what I discovered. And it changed the course of my life. And then I went to University of Dallas and I studied classics uh, I did Greek and I did Latin and I studied some Italian while I was there and I wanted to know everything and I was in love with everything. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> while I was studying a Italian, I fell in love with the Italian language and Italian literature, which I went and had pursued at the graduate level at Notre Dame and uh, have done as a scholar. I've worked with the long tradition of Platonism and his interaction hmm. with Christianity, including yeah. the 14th century poet Dante Alighieri, who wrote in Italian but had access to all these kinds of interesting um, Platonic ideas. And I've taught uh, at Wyoming Catholic College. This is now year 11 for me. And I've taught the Dante's comedy a lot of times. Hmm. And one of my interesting experiences has been teaching the book, uh, the, the third of third canticle of this book called Paradiso or Paradise. And it's very difficult. So difficult that Slate a couple of years ago ran an article which said, does anyone read Dante's Paradiso? And <laughs> it's hard for students. Students get, you know, jazzed about uh, all the gruesome punishments in Inferno. And you can get into purgatorial because there's some community. But Paradiso is really hard. And so I found myself giving introductory lectures to my students and about what is mysticism and what does it mean to call God ineffable? And what yeah. is Dante doing in this third canticle? And as I was giving these lectures to my very good, very upright, very honest, um, very conservative, faithful students who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I realized they, that they were getting all nervous on me and they were getting kind of suspicious of what I was saying. <laughs> And 
I thought, oh, wow, this is interesting. Um, this thing, which has been the sort of lifeblood of the, of the church for, you know, like a millennium and a half, is now, um, is now in some sense so old that it seems like new age spirituality to them. And so huh. I thought, I need to write a book on that. And that's what I did. And the, yeah. for me, the, um, the subtitle of the book is really important. It's called Recovering the Wildness of Spiritual Life. I wanted to call it Recovering the Wildness of God or Recovering the Vision <laughs> of the yeah. Wildness of God. And, but my marketers wouldn't let me do that. So at least I got in the subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I, I don't know if you're familiar with the song, but if there was a controversy about the phrase reckless love of God, um, the phrase wildness of God might cause some people a little bit of uh, concern. I love Maybe. it, though. Maybe. Well, I just, you know, I just want to remind your viewers, it's just good uh, Narnian theology here. Right. Remember when the beavers are talking to the children, they said, look, Aslan is, is he tame? Absolutely not, but he is good. <laughs> right. Right. But l let's start. I think that's fascinating. And, and, you know, the differences, I think, especially when we think about our students, my students have come from a, a tradition vastly different than a Catholic tradition. Um, for the most part, Pentecostal evangelical students, um, or non-religious altogether, that there can be this kind of common strain of interest in mysticism, especially in in the 21st century, that is different, hopefully markedly from the new ageness, right? That some people kind of compare it with from the 90s and the like. But right. maybe my first question to help listeners, even with this word, because it's such a strange word, before we put the adjective of Christian in front of it, what do we even mean when we use this term mysticism altogether? Yeah, mysticism is a really complicated term. It gets dragged into all kinds of uh, interesting uh, theological debates and uh, discussing it. I just like to say that I think at, at its essence, mysticism is just an Ezekiel 2 experience or an Isaiah 6 experience. Isaiah 6 is a chapter that sort of like burned on my imagination from hearing it, you know, preached on as a kid. Um, you know, but Isaiah has this vision in the throne room of God. And there are all these strange creatures surrounding God. And uh, when a voice emerges from the divine, it shakes the, the temple um, and sounds like thunder. And Isaiah's response to this majestic, majestic vision is falling on his face and crying out, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. That experience, I think, is, is mysticism. It's an encounter with God in the fullness of his majesty in the depth of my heart. Now, I think you can you could begin to sort of I think so in my book, I try to argue that um, even though this really has been, you could say, an orthodox and a Catholic theological tradition to talk about it and to ask how many steps there are in the procedures and and how it's related to other things and sort of like, you know, sorting it and sifting it out. That's been a very sort of Catholic and orthodox theological tradition. True. But in my book, I want to you know, sort of suggest that it, at, at its heart, it's a human thing and it's a biblical thing. It's a scriptural thing. Um, hmm. So my kind of brief you know, thumbnail sketch 
history of it is this biblical described experience of the desire to see God in his fullness and the deepest part of myself and a part of me which actually is underneath language, maybe even underneath my rationality, is a biblical experience which in this interesting moment of Christianity, growing up in the Mediterranean world, they have access to Greek thinkers, right? Justin the Martyr, yeah. right? an early sort of apologist is, is trying to draw on cultural, even Paul himself, right? In Acts 17, is trying to draw on contemporary cultural resources to work out or, you know, gesture at, use metaphors for describing this new and extraordinary, yeah. you know, Christian religion, Anyway, so that's my sort of brief uh, genealogy is that it's fundamentally a biblical experience. It's a biblical desire. It's a human desire. Um, but in the course of the tradition, Christians were able to draw on Greek and Latin uh, and Syriac resources in order to talk about, to ask sort of interesting questions. Are there stages to it? What kinds of human faculties are particularly involved do we need to practice any types of spiritual exercises to prepare ourselves for it and so on and so forth? Right. Right. So if that's kind of mysticism in a nutshell, when we kind of tack the word Christian on it and say, we are going to call it Christian mysticism, which a lot of that kind of maybe would be blown out, right? And say that this is an experience of, of, other religions too, kind of these similar questions, right, might be kind of swirling around in, in different religious spheres. But what particularly makes mysticism, at least the way that you discuss it, as Christian? And so we can later on kind of describe what can that mean for us today to be modern Christian mystics? Yeah, cool question. I think we just kind of have to contextualize this. And it's, it's so interesting that, you know, probably a lot of your students um, are grown up in a Christian environment. And by the time they get to college, they have some preconceptions about Christianity. You know, the, our culture is so negative and so acidic and wearing away at Christianity. If they're a lot of sort of thoughtful, you know, kids, when they, when they go to college, Christian kids who want to be deep and want to be spiritual, think that they have to look far to the east to, to do so. And so Buddhism is, you know, is growing, as everyone knows, very rapidly in a lot of kind of Eastern practices. I mean, it's cool to wear Tibetan clothes or, you know, kind of, you know, Indian uh, <laughs> sartorial dress, right? And to like, you know, mandala images and Nepal, all these kind of things. Like I was in Berkeley, California just a year or two ago. And I mean, there, there's got to be 10 stores dedicated to selling um, merchandise from Nepal, right? So it has a, it has a, you know, a fascination for us. Um, right. One of the things that is interesting to me is that the West has all these things too. We have these kind of deep kind of spiritual resources, which we've become blind to. And so that when I read a critique, someone like Nietzsche criticizing Christianity, I think, I just don't think he knows Christianity very well. Um, right. And... Yeah. So, so I think you're right. There's a sort of general, we could say, pre-modern, ancient religiosity, spirituality, which is, I think, uh, has a lot to offer us hungry people who live our lives so busy and on the periphery and constantly distracted that we're afraid of ourselves and we're afraid of silence. But what's specifically Christian about it? Um, I think maybe um, if you're... Readers could only read one chapter from the book and they wanted just to know this. Maybe chapter three, the inward turn, what Augustine learned from the pagans. Um, 
I think, well, surprise, surprise, what is specifically Christian about Christian mysticism is Christ. And I think the... I think that these Neoplatonic authors and these kind of great, you know, Western deep spiritual tradition have this idea of the good or the one. And it's so beautiful and so true and so divine, if I can, that all of our words fail to describe it adequately. Mm, yeah. And they teach sort of practices of, of approaching the good. The divine, the one. Yeah. The huge difference is, though, they always have the image of sort of elevating themselves, purifying themselves, approaching the one in their own purity. Um, Augustine teaches us, though, two crazy things. One, this abstract principle, this sort of, I like to call it a sort of like black hole of being for the Neoplatonist, took on flesh and came and sought us out and hung out with miserable and sad and wretched people in, by the sides in the wells in the, in the heat of the afternoon and sought us out in human flesh and in human language. That's not something that um, the pagans could have uh, foreseen or even, I think, sort of Eastern religions. They don't see an incarnation of this ultimate principle, which yeah. made, took on a face and wept when his friends died. And thus, the corresponding virtue that it inspires in us is a kind of humility. Just as Christ descends, we descend in humility. And we can't just pull ourselves up into this spiritual state. Right. We're broken. We're needy. We need Jesus Christ. We need grace. We, ask, we need friendship. We need one another. Um, and so I think that's what Christianity has, is Christianity has this new element of of incarnation and a corresponding humility uh, that that goes along with it. And I think that makes difference. You know, I, I like kind of in reflecting on that some is actually this reality of thinking about that, that Christian mysticism may do for us what we have always sought to do, but forgotten how to do, which is this, learning the, like you mentioned earlier, the ineffability of God, right? The unknowingness of God and, and diving into that and being consumed by that versus what we attempt to do, which is to know God by rationalizing God completely or fully or making statements about God that are uh, com like complete statements. You know, God is this and that's just it. There's no, there's no discussion on that. And, you know, my little story, right, just just for me, um, is, the, is the reality that growing up in a Pentecostal church and in a Pentecostal kind of ethos, there was a sense of what we would often call the openness to God, right? Like just mm -hmm. being open to God, right. which is where a lot of that Pentecostal practice came from, right? Speaking in tongues and healing and, and so on and so forth, the charismatic expressions was the being open to the surprise to be surprised by God, so to speak. Yes. But as I grew up, that openness seemed to actually shut and it actually seemed to mm. kind of, uh, eventually what we might call mm. normalize in the sense of mm. my Pentecostal churches didn't really have speaking in tongues and we didn't really see these things anymore. Right. Yeah. And I, and I bring all that up cause it's a different complete ethos. I know, but I bring all that up to say, it wasn't until I started reading the mystics mm. that I found my way back into being 
uh, maybe a different type of Pentecostal, but a Pentecostal nonetheless to say that that mysticism is the openness to God Yeah, that I've always craved that things like the expression that we might say speaking in tongues has always been trying to point at the ineffability of God, the, the, yes. the failure yes. of words to try and describe God, right? Yes, with words. What has it go? Romans 8, with words of the Groaning's spirit, too deep too, for words? Too deep for words. Yeah, groaning's too deep for words, right? Yeah. And the best metaphor we can use is calling uh, God daddy. Right. And sort of summoning all Abba, right. Summoning all those kind of like toddler affections for, for a father, just to sort of to dwell in his presence and admiration and, and need. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the sort of, um, those are the sort of foothills of the mystic, um, the sort of warmth of the heart. Um, and I guess the kind of, the interesting thing is, I think, I think one of the thing one of the things that this book tries to do is to suggest that you can't just skip to the deepest level. Um, <laughs> right. This is something that, you know, that uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis himself, you know, seems, seem uh, read this stuff too and was really interested in it. And he's, he's actually corresponding with scholars on mysticism, that sort of stuff. Um, but he, anytime he actually talks about it, he's really, he, he never wants to emphasize it. Like even in his famous weight of glory sermon, you probably remember uh, he he says, I don't want you to think about what this means. This torrens voluptatis, this this um, this overwhelming tsunami of joy. Don't think about it because tomorrow is Monday, and you need to do your duties well, and you need to pray, and you need to have a, a disciplined life, and you need to take care of your neighbors. And so I think I think that's a fundamentally mm. good insight. Is that um, I mean everyone knows the. You know, the, the, the yoga practicer who is so deep and spiritual for 45 minutes twice a week, right, on a punch card, um, and who's cutting people <laughs> off in traffic to get there, right? Um, right. You know, you can't sort of skip to the, that level of depth. Uh, it begins with what the tradition calls eschesis. And what I like to think of is sort of like prying off the grasping hands and all this stuff, which is... Um, peripheral to our being and it's peripheral to our relationships. Um, so there's a kind of ethical dimension or this kind of cleansing dimension in which I try to, I, I try to stop what I, what I also call my spiritual fidgeting, right? In which I'm worried about everything. I'm worried about international events. We talked about that before the show. Yeah. I'm worried. I'm anxious about things. And um, if that's sort of stage one in the mystical tradition, what they call ascesis. And just kind of restoring a sense of, I guess you would call moral calm, in which I'm aware again of my debt of gratitude, as well as the needs around me. And so I think mm-hmm. I think that's re- that's really important for the tradition. I, I say in the introduction that if you if your readers go, and that's ultimately the go the goal, and go start reading some really deep stuff, some some Gregory of Nyssa, some Pseudo Dionysius, um, some Nicholas of Cusa, right? Even maybe some some Meister Eckhart. Um, I think the surprise comes in that about eighty two percent of those texts is not really about the good stuff. It's not the mystical <laughs> encounter. It's rather yeah. leading up to it. It's the it's the discipline. It's the practice of faithfulness and of ascesis, or this. Um, kind of spiritual purification from um, my fidgety 
kind of yeah psychological fidgeting. Yeah, and and I think that brings a, a good part, like a good question to hear. Ask what can Christian mysticism, what can it do for the church today that the church is in need of? Man, that's an awesome question. That may be a huge question, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'm going to rely on uh, the sociologist Christian Smith uh, and his term that we are by default in our culture moralistic, therapeutic, deist, moralistic, therapeutic, deist. By which he means our vision of God is of a sort of principle and he's far away. And he mainly wants us to be good. And Mm. and if we're good, then he'll help us. Moralistic, therapeutic. Um, I guess I I think maybe this is the the crazy wild claim. Is that Christianity rightly understood is not about being good. And Christianity rightly understood is not about having correct opinions. Those are elements of Christianity, absolutely. But I think a lot of us think that the, the purpose of Christianity is to be good. That, that is to be to have a kind of correct moral behavior. That's yeah. important, but that's not the essence. And I think Christian mysticism could help us uh, remember what it was we were trying to do in the first place. Maybe I should talk about that. Um, yeah. The essence of Christianity, yeah. and Eckhart says this crazy thing, is he says, and it almost sounds kind of, it almost sounds irreligious, it's so wild. But he says, just as if we were walking along and saw a beautiful horse run with speed across a meadow, and we almost sort of felt his energy and his strength, so too God looks at us when we exercise our freedom and delights in us. And in some sense, the Mm. essence of Christianity is this playful expression of the abundance of of God's love. Yeah. And then we're good on top of that, right? (laughs) Or rather, we sort of flip it. Our goodness flows from this sense of freedom, this sense of what what Eckhart calls divine laughter. But Mm. the essence of Christianity is a perception of God. Which I think, in understood in the right way, almost turns into a kind of spiritual laughter. Could it huh. really be true? Are you really like that? Have you really given me life? Have you really created this world? That's a basically an aesthetic reaction, right? Is a reaction to you know greater than anything you would have uh, in a in a gallery in a in front of you. Think without being blasphemous. Oh my God, are you really that? Glorious, and then yeah. hold that for a while, and then I'm going to go out there yeah. and be good. But in some sense, the form of my goodness is now motivated by a vision—a vision in freedom and a vision of beauty. Yeah, that's transformative. I think potentially. Yeah, I, no, I'm I'm with you, and I think it kind of works. I don't want to say contra because it isn't contra, but it it works in a way that's so different to what you're saying, the way that we often think about Christianity, Christianity, theology, right? So much of the right beliefs idea that will inform right actions. Yes. And, and there's other options too. I think of someone like 
James James K. A. Smith, right emotions will then in, in fact inform right actions. But maybe it can be something even a, th- a third thing, which is right vision, right, or just kind yes. of right, yes. you know, a, a right. I don't want I, again. My my Pentecostalist goes back to right experience, right? That sitting in that playful experience with God in awe. Yeah, that overwhelms us, right? Yes, and I guess you know. I mean, well, let's just go back to where we began in the Isaiah six chapter, right? Before Isaiah receives his commission to go to this and that people to preach this and that thing, he has to have the vision. But he has to have a vision of which, first of all, knocks him down literally, and then lifts him back up. Um, yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. A kind of um, a kind of spiritual vision, and the mystical tradition. Uh, and this is where it gets really hard for us moderns. The mystical tradition says that this is what is at the center of rationality. Um, that is, there are there are true statements, um, but then there is truth itself, which is sort of yet yet before it's articulated in this or that truth proposition. And the truth itself is Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ in communion with God. Right. And, um, and that there are human faculties which are attuned to knowing truth itself, not this or that particular truth. That makes sense. Right. So there's this sort yeah. of, the mystics teach this kind of, this way of return, which begins with purification. That is, if I am addicted to, uh, <laughs> if I am addicted to lustful behavior, if I can't look at another human being without, you know, thinking about what kind of pleasure they could provide for me, or if I am so motivated by uh, ambition or avarice that I can't sit still, or if I only think that, you know, the weekend is where I can find my pleasure, right? In other words, this sort of spiritual fidgetiness, I got to get rid of that first. That's what the tradition calls purification. Hmm. But then I have to do some intellectual work. I have to I have to study and I have to think and I have to challenge my mind and I have to re- read great and profound things and I have to um, I have to purify my intellect and that's called uh, illumination. Hmm. Every now and then, uh, I don't know, maybe even a good conversation like this. Even while you're talking about particular things which are true, there's a kind of sense of welling up from within. This yeah. this thing which is higher up and farther in. And it's almost like the ground, the, the soil in which truth is itself springs up. The mystical tradition says there's a human faculty which is attuned to that, that more mysterious thing, that thing that's almost like a spiritual freefall or spiritual play, yeah. love or abundance. And so I think the beautiful thing is that the tradition wants to sort of um, talk about the stages of getting there. But even when you get there, in some sense, the vision flows back into those to those earlier stages. So that if you're a spiritual, a very spiritual person, it's no excuse to not be an amazing neighbor, nor is it an excuse to, you know, to not play with your kids, you know, play Legos with your kids down in the basement, right, um, in the evenings, right? The spiritual person does those things. The spiritual person then returns back down to where he began and those sort of ordinary daily activities of love, 
but he's doing it for yeah. a different reason now. Yeah. It's almost to put it in a different way and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but in some sense, the statements of truth that we often make about the Christian religion, the Christian faith, while they might partially be true, they're not as true as the experience of experiencing truth itself. Does that make sense? That, that I think that's pretty profound. Um, I mean, there's a whole like um, there's a whole field of philosophical studies these days, like the philosophy of representation. In part because we've gotten there, just because of what we're beginning to think about physics, right? The whole sort of question yeah. about quantum, quantum energy, yeah. what this stuff is, and we're kind of beginning to feel in a way that. Uh, and, and one of C.S. Lewis's best friends, Owen Barfield, was really interesting on the subject. But we're beginning to feel that those sort of things that we, which we see and recognize and perceive, um, we can call them true. But they're always analogies or metaphors or partial right. representations for, for a sort of deeper, deeper, you know, deeper ground. Um, I think... I think in a way, I think the the trick is to, uh, it's all about metaphor. Um, That is, I think just as a sort of human being cannot be confused with the sum total of his actions, but there's something beautiful and profound and free and elusive and deep down in there, which is expressing itself through its words and through its face and through its actions. There's something always deeper down in there. Right. I think in, I think in that way, the tradition, I think, says that we really, we need to think about, we need to think about truth in that way. We need to think about doctrinal and dogmatic statements in that way. Um, That they're not meant to exhaustively explain in a kind of mechanistic philosophical way, but they're meant to safeguard from error so that our gaze turns back into how much more there is in there to draw out. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. That's, that's what I've always appreciated about this metaphor of going into darkness is this metaphor of not a, not a sense of just giving up, but rather the farther traveling into the knowledge of God to use that kind of cliched phrase, right? The more, you know, the more, you know, that you don't know, right? But it's not a giving up of knowing it's a further encouragement to know, but the further that we go to know, the more we recognize how much we can't and how we have to give up the, the, not the desire to know, but the clinging to knowing as the means of getting there. The desire to control, the desire to possess, the desire. So I think, you know, we can definitely know true things about people and about things and about God. Um, The problem is, and everyone, everyone knows this. Everyone has been put in the, in a box by someone and felt restricted. Um, Look, that person might even know true things about me, but to not see that, to not see that there's more than those true things. Right. And so I think in a way, when we're, when we apply this to theological matters, when we apply this to sort of thinking about um, knowing God and praying to God, the tradition has a cool term for this. Cusa, Nicholas of Cusa uses it. It's called learned ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> Different than just old fashioned ignorance, 
which is often yeah. sort of tied up with indifference, right? And lack of caring. Learned ignorance is hard won. And it takes a lifetime of learning <laughs> and thinking to get to the level of learned ignorance. But I think, yeah. that, I think what you said is, is, is exactly what they're describing is um, when I, if you, I think if you study something in the right way, you admire it more when you're done than when you began. If you study something in the wrong way, uh, and you think that, you know, I don't know if some, someone tells you that there are, you know, five things you need to know about the subject, then it can actually destroy your ability to perceive the depth of a subject. <laughs> right. right. Our, our desire for listicles and making complicated things overly simplified has yeah. made its way into Christianity, right? Taking yeah, something sure. as complicated as 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 God or even as complicated as the gospel message and trying to make it into this bite-sized here's how you can get it and grasp it all at once and you're done versus a this is going to always be yeah. just outside of grasp right yeah i mean while, I mean, while you continue to keep reaching for it yes because I think, in some sense, you know, the mystery of uh, one of the well, one of the many mysteries of Christianity, one of the mysteries of sort of the life of Jesus, is that he wanted he wanted disciples and not students. Um, I mean, he didn't want a group of people to pass on uh, his knowledge to. He wanted to he wanted to train people so that they would go out there and be little micro Jesuses, micro Jesus Christ, in a way which no one could have foreseen. I think that's yeah. you know, in some sense, right. That's the difference between like telling a student the ten right answers to have, and the and having a disciple who enters into formation, right? So that then that person goes out and performs unexpected things in the world, um, which are both faithful to the master, but he hadn't been prepped for it. Going back yeah. to the idea of prudence. And uh, I mean, so there's definitely obviously some, uh, you know, Christians, we do believe in uh, certain ethical principles and certain behaviors we're not allowed to engage in. Um, and, and that we have to, I think, uh, acknowledge that. Um, and yet, I think the essence of Christianity, no one can tell you what to do. You have to go out there and in some sense live in freedom uh, this relationship with God and Christ in this world. And it's going to be 100% unique, isn't it? Yeah. Which, which, I mean, it's, it's probably why it, it's why we like, and I don't say we like as in it's better, but it's, it's why we might go to Paul more than we go to Jesus because Paul tells us often what to do or not to do. And Jesus doesn't quite often tell us that he tells us stories to form us. Right, and this isn't yeah. a pitting Jesus against Paul by any stretch, but it is just a sense that actually going back to the to the words of Jesus is often takes more work than it does to go hear Paul's statement about do this, don't do that. Right. Yeah, and I think you know that some of the more interesting twentieth century theologians have have been really interested in why our Lord speaks in such difficult parables, and sometimes He explains them. But most of the time he doesn't. Right. And they're difficult and elusive. And what is he doing? <laughs> and that way, I think, right. I think in that way, I think he's he's trying to safeguard. Um, he's trying to safeguard 
the type of relationship he wants his followers yeah. to have. And he yeah. doesn't want to reduce people to formulas. And he doesn't want people to think, and I find this, you know, I think this is a real temptation for us. He doesn't want people to think that not being bad is the same as goodness, right? Mm. Again, yeah. Not being bad. Yeah. It's not the same as goodness. Right. Yeah. That is if I'm not committing, you know, this or that uh, um, unacceptable act, if I, I feel like, I, you know, I'm a good person. I'm not. I've just reached like neutrality. <laughs> yeah. Right. I haven't. Yeah. I think in a way, uh, yeah, the sort of safeguarding the mystery of that sort of protects us from um, living my life moralistically. I, I will say, I know Jason has to get to a class to teach. I wish we could keep going and going and going because I think we could keep going into different ways and, and discussions about this because it's a really both interesting topic, but also one that I hope is freeing for those who may have gotten into a rhythm that that is anything but mystical or anything but grand in this mystery of, of God. But Jason, before you go, let people know what you're working on. We talked a little bit about this book, but what else you're working on if they want to if they want to kind of keep up. I mean, everyone needs to go buy Introduction to Christian Mysticism because that's uh, I think a great starting place. Um, but anything else you're working on for people to to know about? Yeah, I have mainly written on on Dante, the the Florentine medieval poet Dante. It's it's a book that um, a lot of people feel it's the sort of like Mount Everest of literature and they know they should read it and they're terrified of doing so. I've written an introduction to that um, and that's also through Baker and that's been a really, that was a fun book. A lot of people really loved it. Um, I am working on a book called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, which will be out with IVP Press in 2022. Um, and I'm doing a new translation of, of Dante's comedy. And I'm also working on a book called What Were Humans? which is going hmm. to compare contemporary digital and technological culture with the pre-modern way of thinking about humanity and friendship and the world. Oh, that's and such a needed topic, right? Uh, today, a little something for everyone there and in, in what you're writing. So thanks. Good. Um, Jason, thanks so much for doing this with me, for enlightening uh, my audience to Christian mysticism, at least an introduction to the introduction of Christian mysticism and why it may be good for today. Thanks for doing yeah. it. Thanks, Aaron. It's been super fun. Thanks.